The book of Acts, chapter 10, we'll stand and read verses 1 through 23. This morning's message is entitled, Preparation for Preaching. So if you would stand, please. <clears throat> Acts, chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion, of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, and when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey, they drew near the city. Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and waited to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill, eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time, What God has cleansed, you must not all common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked Simon, whose surname was Peter, lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by the holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Please be seated. Now, that wasn't too bad. Preparation for the gospel. What, what's happening behind the scenes when someone is being led to Christ's coming into salvation. What's going on? Did it just happen? Did they just get saved? And the story is giving us a lot of background information. Absent from this chapter is conflict. And we appreciate that. 
This chapter is about the preparation for the gospel, those in need, and then the reception of the gospel as we get to the latter verses in following sessions. The preparation to deliver the message is very important. We see Peter being spiritually prepared, but we also see the recipient. Paul said in Ephesians 5, when he spoke about the armor of the believer, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I, I wonder how we kind of skip over that because we're focused on, you know, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the word. But to have the right footwear is critical. A lot of places I won't go with flip-flops on. I need to be tactical, ready, you know, <laughs> ready for something to happen. I don't want to get caught with flip-flops on. Well, this is biblical. <laughs> In this sense, we are to be ready. Luke now turning attention back to Peter's ministry, having, been in, having introduced us to Paul. We're about 10 years now from Pentecost and the Lord ascending into heaven. The Jews had been circulating the gospel amongst themselves. Then there was the outreach to the Samaritans that we read about. And finally now, it's going to reach the Gentiles. But again, we won't get to all of that in one session. Race and culture and sin and Satan, they all stood in the way of the gospel breaking free from Judaism. And I I you know we don't see that on the surface as we look at the book of Acts and then into the epistles, how difficult it was for the church to find its identity and who she was, that uh, you did not have to follow the Sabbath and the dietary laws and the circumcision. Uh, you did not have to adhere to the ritual. You weren't to go down to the temple to worship uh, with the sacrificial offerings. But it, it did not just happen. It it evolved in their understanding. God knew it all the time, but God was being gentle with them. He knew he was dealing with human beings. He just don't go in and just, you know, radically change everything if there's a better way. Messiah was never to be confined to the Jewish people alone. There was never God's plan that just the Jews and Judaism would have the Messiah. This was going to expand. And that's why he tells us in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaking, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Well, this is the beginning of this being fulfilled. Up to this point, no true Gentile had been saved. The Gentiles that were saved had already converted to Judaism or had some connection to Judaism, uh, some commitment, even the Samaritans. So this is going to be a different, a different event. Uh, reaching all peoples is not for amateurs. It's for those that are subject to the Holy Spirit, His teachings, uh, we know as the Bible, because of Jesus Christ and the will of the Father. In Matthew's Gospel, Christ illustrates this. The servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares, or weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. 
servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into the barn. Well, one thing, among others, that we get from that passage in Matthew is that there are processes. It, it, things cannot just radically happen, at least not regularly. And this is what is happening to the church, bringing the Gentiles in. It's, and it's going to take... Paul's going to spend so much of his ministry fighting for Christianity against those who are in Christianity, insisting that they follow the rites and rituals of the law of Moses. So what we get out of this is that when we go into a place with the gospel, we can't expect people to just, okay, I accept it. You preach the gospel. Okay, sign me up. There's a lot that goes into it. It is spiritual. There's spiritual work, and there is physical work. And so now let's see if we can develop these thoughts, beginning in verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. Well, Caesarea is the capital for Rome, the Roman governor resided in Caesarea. This is Caesarea by the sea versus Caesarea Philippi, for example, which is inland. <clears throat> Rome ruled over Judea from there. Large garrison of troops in Caesarea. A large one in Jerusalem also, but the larger here in Caesarea. Herod had built an aqueduct coming from the springs at Mount Carmel to Caesarea to bring fresh water to this region where a lot of Gentiles were. And to this day, you can go to Caesarea by the sea and you'll see the, the remnants, the, the, the ruins, I guess you could say, of this aqueduct. There's also this large amphitheater in Caesarea. That's an outside stadium-like, and it's, uh, it's sizable, and it's open to the public. And there you can stand in the very spot where the officials would judge the court cases. One of those court cases was the Apostle Paul. He stood there before Felix. He stood there before Festus and Agrippa. And you can stand right where Paul stood. Now, there might be some that say, well, we're not 100% sure that was it. Well, they are not. I am. <laughs> so it's a, it's a highlight of the trip to to Israel, to stand there in this amphitheater. And uh, it says that he was a centurion of what is called the Italian Regiment. Well, uh, of the one of 60 officers in a Roman legion, whenever we read of centurions, they're noble men in the New Testament, his modern-day rank would be maybe a captain in the, uh, in the infantry um, or in the... <clears throat> Army or the or the or the Marine Corps, but the Navy captain, of course, is more of a, is a colonel. Equal. All right, you don't need to hear all that. Sorry, just working out the math in my head. Verse two: A devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So he's very serious about God. That, that's the statement. A devout man. He's very serious. When his colleagues were off reading the philosophies of Plato and Cato and the rest of them, uh, he's searching for God. When they were at the theater or the arena, he, we get the feeling he's searching for God. Not that he did not engage in some of these things also. 
Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Because they're going to do it on their terms. But when you do it on God's terms, you, you, you enter. And here this man is striving to enter the gate. He's, he's seeking. He's not, I don't get the impression he's fully there. I'll develop it a little bit, hopefully. He continues here in verse 2. And one who feared God. Well, the God-fearers who were Gentiles concerning Judaism were not yet converts, full converts, as the Ethiopian eunuch was. It says, with his, all his household, everyone in his house cared and revered God. What a nice statement. What a noble statement about this man. This household was made up of family, of servants and slaves, and of soldiers. And the ones closest to this man revered God. It was a good house to belong to. I hope that we who provide a house for others provide a good house. And I hope those who receive it recognize it. Still, all of them, though they revered God, they lacked detailed theology. It's not enough to want God. There are details that have to be filled in, and they come from God. We call them revelations, or we call it scripture. And Cornelius is going to need this, where it says he gave alms generously to the people. Well, he had a heart that was ready to join the causes of God and care for other people less fortunate. He appears to not have yet, as though he was on the brink of finalizing his faith, but he just wasn't ready to pull the trigger, we might say. He just wasn't ready to, to make the step. <clears throat> well, the Jews made that complicated. They would have required him to be circumcised. They would have required him to follow their dietary law. They would have required him to honor the Sabbath. Well, for a centurion, that would have been difficult. All of it. And that may have given him some delay. So we're dealing again with human beings, not just robots. And God is mindful of this. And God knew that Judaism would not work outside of Israel. I mean, they're just things you could not practice when you get to, to other places, um, such as the great north, Siberia. I mean, if you had to restricted by these laws, you, couldn't, you wouldn't be able to survive. You had to work every day, Sabbath included. You had to go get sticks to keep warm, <clears throat> or for fuel, that is. Anyway, coming back to this, it says he prayed to God always. Well, without reverence for truth, we're not apt to seek the truth. There are a lot of people right now, they have no interest in the truth concerning Christ or God or eternity. They have no appetite for these things. They're just living their lives their way. Or may, you may be able to engage them for a little bit on the subject. But it doesn't go very far. It pitters out. And those are the people we pray for. Those are the people we hopefully pray for often. God is reaching out to this man. Remember as Peter was walking on the, on the sea. when He said, Lord, if it is you, bid me to come. And Christ says, well, come. And he starts walking and he's distracted by the, the storm. And he starts to sink and he calls out. And Christ, the Bible says, reaches out and grabs him. Well, Christ is reaching out and grabbing Cornelius and his household. And he wants to do this. We are sure of that. Long-suffering, willing that none should perish. We don't have to guess about God's position on lost souls. 
He did not die only for the elect. He died for sinners. And of those sinners that respond to his invitation, they are elected to salvation. That means they're not owed salvation, but they're given it. We come and we receive salvation. We do not earn it. That insults God. To say that I earn my salvation is to say I really don't need the blood of Christ. He, you know, his dying, that's his thing, but I don't need that. I'm really too good. And that's how insulting it is. So a question arises out of looking at this man, Cornelius. He's obviously a moral man, a good and decent human being, though yet not aware of where this is all going, what God requires of a man. The question is, does a moral man need a redeemer? And that question is answered by his conversion. God is saying he's not good enough without the Son. He must be born again. He must be touched from above. God must sign off on his salvation, and it will be through Christ Jesus. What most folks who reject Christ may not understand is that Christ is not judging sinners by other sinners. He is judging them by a far higher standard. He's judging them by his sinless son, Jesus. And we are to communicate. You know, when you, when you speak on the gospel, there's so much to say. It's all kind of bottles up. You've got to get it all out. It's so simple. It's so easy. It's, but it's so powerful. Here, Cornelius, verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, well, God knows where we are. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the time of <clears throat> evening prayer for the Jews. It is unscientific to scoff at the spiritual realm. There are those that are ready to believe in extraterrestrials from, from UFOs, from other planets, from other galaxies. They are very excited about those things. Many of them are Christians. And they pass right by the extraterrestrials of the, of the spiritual realm. There are other beings, and they are in another dimension, the spiritual dimension. I mean, there's a lot of things, I mean, with the kookiness about the UFOs. Yeah, they have all this technology and power, and they just like to show up every now and then and just go away. And the whole thing makes no sense. I believe it happens. Uh, people, well, anyway, I know. Every time I get on this UFO stuff, I want to just pick it apart. Maybe we'll just do a sermon on UFOs one day. But I don't know if you'd be able to identify the sermon. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> it is unscientific to look at creation and block out the creator. It's just not science. Science is the study of, of, of things that are. And you, you just can't get away from it. But anyway, another topic. Um, verse 4. And when he observed him, Cornelius observing the angel, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, you, Your prayers and your alms have come up, before, uh, up for a memorial before God. So he startled. Verse 30, when he retells the story, he says that this angel was wearing bright clothing, and it is an angel and not the Lord. Um, the, the timing is right. That's what's going on here for, for Cornelius to receive such a vision. Not like Daniel 10. Well, in Daniel 10, Daniel was praying. He was so disturbed about the history of his people. Remember, he's in captive in Babylon, and he wants to know what's happening, and he's very disturbed by what he has, God has shown him. 
And he's praying and fasting about this. When the angel finally gets to Daniel, he says, I was delayed. The, the prince of Persia delayed me. And we, we tend to think that the, the evil forces were delaying the angel from coming to Daniel. Uh, they were, but not in, maybe in the sense we're ready to, to accept. They were in the sense that the angels were influencing the leaders in Persia. Satan was counterworking that influence. Whoever won this struggle would be the one that determined how the future of the Jews would be handled. So that was spiritual war going on, but it was a war of influence, influencing humans, which the angels were involved in. And if you look at Daniel 10, you scrutinize it, you come to the realization that is the meaning, at least it was for me. A lot of years of studying, no, but a lot of guys don't want to even comment on Daniel 10 and the resistance of the angels. So maybe you, when you go home, you'll relook at that and oh, come to where you always come when I say things like that in agreement with me. Laugh, laugh, joke, joke. Well, anyway, God, here he is responding to a seeking heart as he was with Daniel. But Daniel, before they could get to him, they had to cover other business. There was this resistance from Satan and Michael had to come and get involved with the influencing of righteousness within the palace. Uh, anyway, uh, if you don't see it that way, you can end up having more questions than answers. This um, verse 5 now, now send men to Joppa and send for Simon whose surname is Peter. Interesting how the angel could deliver a message from the throne of God, but he could not deliver the message of salvation. It takes one to save one. It takes a sinner to save a sinner. I mean, if you, you know why you you would think it logically, but we're not. Logic goes beyond this realm. There's a spiritual. There are spiritual factors. There are spiritual laws. We don't know it all. We have enough to come to better understandings. Angels cannot preach the gospel. Not yet. They will in the, in the, in the, in the end when things are, are in the extreme state. But up to now, it is for us. Caesarea was the residence of Philip the Evangelist. But Peter is activated. And Peter is 30 miles away. Well, that causes questions. Why is Peter being called to come 30 miles up when Philip lives there. Well, yeah, Philip could be away, could be other factors, but I think this is, this is what's going on. At Caesarea Philippi, many years ago, perhaps about 12 years ago, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Peter stepped forward. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, because you didn't figure that out on your own. God the Father gave you that. That is given to you. That knowledge. And then he says, I give to you the kingdom. The keys to the kingdom. And upon this rock I will build my church. Well, what's this with this keys of the kingdom? Well, think about it this way. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon Jewish believers under whose leadership? Peter's. Peter was the dominant apostle. There's no question about that. At Pentecost. At Samaria, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Philip had been up there evangelizing, but the Holy Spirit had not been given. Peter comes up with John. Again, 
under Peter's leadership, and he is the dominant figure again. And then here, what we're going to see at the end of the chapter, here at Caesarea by the sea, the Holy Spirit will come upon the Gentiles, and it will be under Peter's leadership each time. Peter is opening the door for the peoples of the earth so that if you're Jewish, the Holy Spirit is available to you. If you're a Jewish and you're a Gentile mixture, the Holy Spirit's available to you. If you're just a Gentile, the Holy Spirit is available. There's no one left out. You cannot say there are religious requirements. No, there are God requirements as given in the Scripture. And so this is why I believe that Peter is the one being called up north because God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit. Now, Philip was active up there, no question about that. We'll get back to Philip. We'll meet him again. Paul will stop by Caesarea Philippi. Then we get chapter 21 and spend time with Philip. So it's no slight on him. But there is a system in place. God called it in advance, and now we see it carried out. The Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God through the Holy Spirit, is opened up to all peoples through Peter. Verse 6, He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Well, this made it easy to find Peter. All you had to do is ask, where's the village tanner? And the houses of the tanners were usually by water because of the processes involved in uh, dealing with the, the skins that they, of the animals that they would turn into product, shoes or whatever else you had belts, etc. God's messenger is talking about Peter, and Peter is completely unaware of it. Is God talking to someone else about me I, in a righteous way? Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. Like, Let me tell you about that guy. Well, this is, um, this is eye-opening, because when we come across these verses, we know it's not, oh, this is just for Peter. Well, the opening of the the gospel and with the Holy Spirit was just for Peter, but we, we, we tied that into the word of Christ there at Caesarea Philippi. But all the rest belongs to us. He will tell you what you must do. Well, Saul was told that about Ananias. Ananias will tell you what you must do. Now, Cornelius is being told that Peter will tell you. He's leading in increments. He doesn't just, God does not just lay it out to him. It's unfolding. Sometimes God lays it all out. Sometimes he takes his time. And this is one of them. It takes a few days for this, all of this to get to where it is going. But here's something very important. He will tell you what you must do. Um, what did Peter tell Cornelius to do? Verse 48 tells us. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. He took them full circle. That's what happened. Peter's going to lead them through salvation. In the middle of his sermon, the Holy Spirit interrupts. It's not rude because that is his prerogative. If another person did, it would probably be an issue. But for God, it is his. All of it belongs to him. He has that right. And Peter knew it and submitted to it. Baptism is a public thing. And if you cover it up, if you try to say, well, don't tell anybody I was baptized, then that defeats the whole purpose. That's what baptism is for. 
If anyone, if a Christian said, I'm going to baptize you, but don't tell anybody, I would question that person's understanding of the Scripture. Well, we do not get baptized to hide it. No man lights a, a candle and, and sticks it under a sofa. And if he does, he's either going to set the sofa on fire or put out the candle. So verse 6, he's lodging with the tanner. I hope I made it clear about water baptism is a public thing. It's not something we sneak around doing. Though in certain areas where persecution is intense, there is some margin there. Verse 7, And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants, a devout soldier, from among those who waited on him continuously. So the angel, he spoke and he departed. We never see these guys hanging out. It's like they do their job and they go like, I had to get out of here. I don't want anything to rub off on me. Um, uh, so anyway, of course, there's the time when they come and dine with Abraham, but still they take care of business and leave. This uh, family setting here, this household setting <clears throat> with the servants, the family, and the soldiers recalls to mind General Naaman. We just looked at Naaman in our midweek study in Kings. He, too, had faithful servants and soldiers around him who actually genuinely cared for him. Cornelius seems to be cut from the same cloth. There are good people outside of Christ. That is a fact. And there are some difficult people inside of Christ. But it's not good enough. It's not good enough to be a decent and good person outside of Christ. That is the whole story of reaching out to Cornelius. Jesus said, don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Well, Cornelius, an officer, he knows how to take orders. He knows how to give orders. And had he been a lesser man in character, these men might have scoffed at what he was saying. Yeah, right, an angel appeared. But he was such a man. He lived in such a way that when he said something, they understood that he meant business. And they had no reason to doubt him. I want to be that kind of a person. Who doesn't? Who does not want to have that kind of influence over people in their lives? That when we say something serious, we're taken seriously in a good way. So he entrusts these friends and servants with supernaturally given spiritual information. And they're going to travel 30 miles, probably by horse or mule, to deliver the message of Cornelius, which is the message of the angel, verse 9, which, of course, the message of God. It follows that <coughs> hierarchy. Verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he's still oblivious to what's going on. He's living his life in Christ. The scene is the rooftop by the sea. It's a nice place to go. The Mediterranean, the beautiful Mediterranean. And the angel had met the previous day at 3 o'clock with Cornelius. Both times are Jewish times for prayer, 9 a.m., 12 noon, 3 p.m. And 
So at the temple, while Peter is praying, just like when Cornelius was the day before, prayers are flying up to heaven. The Jews is with their three times a day to pray. And we see that Daniel opened his door, as was his custom, and pray three times. We find Peter at each interval praying. He had become a man of prayer. At Pentecost, at 9 a.m., he went to pray. Uh, him and John went to the temple at 3 p.m., the evening prayer, when they were confronted with the, with the beggar. And then here it is at noontime. Years ago, Peter, with the apostles, had declared what the priorities of the apostles were. As the pastors of the church, they said, we will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And again, the ministry of the word is not just reading the word. It is acting upon it. And that's the ergo, the ministry of versus the reading of, the mere reading of. Here we see him exercising the prayer side of his declaration. He's giving himself to prayer. When we come, when he gets to the house of Cornelius and begins to preach, he's exercising the word part of it. And the effect, the effect is that people get saved. Things happen for the kingdom. That is a pattern for us, a template for us. In verse 10, then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. That's happened to me. I've been so hungry, I fell into a trance. Okay. Has <laughs> that not happened? Anyway. <clears throat> um, then he became hungry and wanted to eat. And as they made ready. So they're making lunch. He's not asleep. A, a trance is where the visions are given. And a vision, the difference between a vision and a dream is you're awake for the vision, but you're sleeping for the dream. And um, you consciously, you are removed from your immediate surroundings. And this is what is happening to Peter. Um, verse 11 he saw the heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. Coming straight out of heaven, it says it was coming, descending to him. In his vision, he is singled out. Maybe you have a dream and in the dream, somebody in the dream is singled out. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's somebody else. In this vision, this was him. God had his attention. Four corners of the sheet. Why would you have to say that? Well, because it is the world, the four points of compass. And I think Peter is getting that. He's understanding. It sticks with him because he's the one telling the story. And Luke is preserving it. This is an important point. The four corners of that sheet. With the, you know, it's hard to say the sheet because you're thinking sheep. And because it's both, you know, part of Christianity, sheep so much. But anyhow, verse 12, and then you don't want to, of course, misspeak and say something that you really regret. Verse 12, in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. So the unclean animals represent the Gentiles. Yay, that's me. <laughs> the clean represent the Jews. Now, ceremonially speaking, God is, God is, of course, changing all of this. Both are here together uh, in the sheet, assembled. And from God's perspective, they're, they're both clean. 
There's nothing unclean here. But Peter's got to get through this. And God is helping him. Maybe you've got some hang-ups. Maybe they're racist. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're cultural. Uh, maybe they're religious. Whatever they are, you've got stuff that's got to get cleaned up. And God is the one that's going to do that for you. Mostly, I think, uh, God does it through sermons. There are other ways, of course. But, for, for example, when you come and sit at a ser- through a sermon that is a biblical sermon, you're singled out, just like Peter. What God has to say through his servant is God's business. What you do with what is said is your business. The two together is what make the relationship work. And maybe, again, you've got something to sort out. Maybe there's someone you, you have a grudge against and you know it's gone too far in your heart and you need to you know, dial it back and take it to the Lord. Um, you know, without the snide little comments, Lord, you know I hate this person, but you know they, you hate them too. And you can't say things like that to God. Uh, it's not good. It's so important to pray out loud. But when you're in your closet <laughs> or in your car, wherever you are alone, it's so important because when you articulate things, you begin to, your brain begins to, to ring in on it. Like, you know what? I'm actually thinking about what I'm saying to God. Whereas I might speak to a person, I might not be that doing that. So here's an example. Maybe, maybe someone out there who listens to this on the radio, because it doesn't happen here. Maybe they're saying you have bad thoughts about your pastor. <laughs> I know, it's ridiculous, but we'll go with it anyway. Well, if you take it to God instead of to your friend or someone else, take it to God. Find out what happens then. Uh, it, it's just remarkable how if you have an opponent in life and you talk to God about them, there's relief there. Now, that doesn't mean the other person is going to get saved or get right or, or something like that, but it does mean God singles you out and works with you on the matter, and that's what we want so much. So, uh, here we see the clean and the unclean assembled together, just like a church. Both will be caught up to heaven together when we get to verse 16. All declared clean by God. That's what he does. No matter how defiled you are, God can help. He can reclassify you. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those are big words. It takes a big God to make it happen. And we have him, and he has us, and the world does not. And we are supposed to help them, but in the way of that is they see, they see faults within, within the church, within Christians, and they think that that's their get-out-of-judgment card. It is not. God will not say, oh, you, you looked at the church and you didn't want any part of me. Well, I never told you to look at them. I told you to look at me, and then that would lead to looking at them, but it's, it's a, he is paramount. Verse 13, and a voice came to him, to Peter. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Uh, Meaning, the law has been modified by God. That's what's going on here. Now, it's not explicitly said that it is God's voice. However, verse 19 says, the Spirit, and that is the Holy Spirit. So it is God speaking. Verse 14, but Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Well, 
Cornelius called the angel Lord, uh, here in the, the Greek, it's not the covenant name of Christ. That's not enough for us to realize that he's who he's speaking to. We need something uh, larger. And again, verse 19 gives that to us in referring to him as the spirit. But what Peter says essentially is, no way, Lord. <clears throat> Maybe Peter thought he was being tested. Because Leviticus you know, 20, for example, is very clear about these things. You don't eat pork, as an example, other things too. Peter objects, as did Ananias. Lord, you know how savage this guy's been with the church. I like this. I like that they, you know, Peter voices his objections. If something's on his mind, he says it to God. Jeremiah was that way. Jeremiah had a problem with how God was doing something. He took it to God. And there it was settled. And that is an admirable quality. That now doesn't mean Peter's right, but at least he's, he's upfront about his position. He's not fooling anyone. He gets into problems later, as we all do. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Not a boast, he's stating a fact. He said, I've never had any of those animals, knowingly had any of those animals. Jews regarded Gentiles as unclean largely because of what they ate. Peter wanted to be unspotted by the world. James chapter 1, verse 27. Keep oneself unspotted from the world. A lot of work, because the world is determined to draw us in. Verse 15. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call uncommon. How do you hear this voice? I think, I think this tells you what kind of a, something about our theology. How do you hear the voice? Do you hear it like, rise, Peter, kill and eat? What God has cleansed, you must not. I mean, is that how you hear the voice of God? Or do you hear it as, uh, you know, God almost just making the, uh, an imperative remark? But God has cleansed. Don't call, don't call unclean. Why can't God say it that way? He talks that way to me. God always speaks even when he's upset with me. And that's happened once. Um, it's, it's always been just very gentle and very courteous. And uh, When Peter sinned by denying the Lord, the Lord didn't say anything to him. He just looked at him. And Peter <laughs> fell apart. So I think that, you know, if you are prone to legalism and judge, and if you're just judgmental, you might hear that voice as harsh. But in reality, I think it is not. I think Peter, there's no indication he's intimidated He's dialoguing. It is, <clears throat> here in verse 15, uh, the voice spoke to him a second time. Well, this is a serious matter, and that's why it is being emphasized. The gospel demands change. It doesn't find us the way it wants us. And that's the truth. And <clears throat> we, there have, there's, I don't, there's no one that comes to the Christ and says, well, you know, he didn't really have to do anything with me. I acknowledge he's a savior. But I was, I'm pretty good like I am. Uh, of course, even Paul knew better than that. Jewish dietary laws. Now, I'm going to go against the grain on some of you, not against the scripture, but I, maybe what you've come to think. People have told me that, and even some of the good commentators, many of them, as a matter of fact, talk about the dietary laws were given to the Jews to keep them healthy. I disagree. The dietary laws were not for health reasons. Otherwise... God would be supporting Paul poor health by lifting the restriction for the church. 
Well, I really cared about the Jews. I didn't want them to eat that stuff. But you, you, you can eat it. I don't care about you. See, that's messed up. That's not what's going on. Those laws, they were giving, given to make the Jews distinct from everybody else and to challenge them outwardly. They sat at the table and said, I can't eat that. And they could tell you why they couldn't eat that. And the bottom line, what was the bottom line why they could not eat that? They were commanded not to. It was an obedience issue. So, we don't read of Gentiles being less healthy or worse off for abstaining from the foods the Jews were not to eat. Uh, history, you find them just as living as long. You know, I think yogurt is the reason why people live long. At least that's what the commercial said years ago. <laughs> You'll find some guy. He's 400 years old, but he likes yogurt. Uh, anyway, uh, God, again, uh, the Levitical laws made them distinct. Uh, certainly, there were some of the laws that, you know, are standard, even in other, you know, thou shalt not murder, steal, and, and so forth. Those are fully uh, in effect. So it was an arbitrary decision by God to say, okay, don't eat this, but you can eat that. Outwardly testing their obedience. Only the one who originally gave the commandment could overturn it, could overrule it. And that is what we're seeing here. God himself is showing up to Peter saying, I am God, you know I am God, this is what I want now. And Peter's going to abide in this. This um, education took place for Paul. You know, he had to relearn life in, in, in his faith. Conversion and consecration, not the same thing, but they are inseparable. And some don't, you know, they are justified, but they really don't sanctify. They're sanctified in God's eyes. They're set aside for salvation. They're justified. But they're not developed. That There's two forms to sanctification. There's the instant part that comes with justification when you accept Christ as Savior. Then there's the task of a lifetime to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that takes a lot of work and a lot of pain. Well, we are running close to out of time. We need to move this up um, Peter is being told that God is removing a distinction between peoples when it comes to the gospel that they don't have to become Jewish and again there's not a slight on Jewish people at all I don't know how you can be a Christian and be anti-Semitic against the Jews God made that very clear to Abraham whoever curses your seed I'm going to deal with them <laughs> so, well, so it's not that just the facts we're dealing with uh, we no longer see a, 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 a Jew, when a Jewish man or woman comes to Christ, they're now Christian, period. Now there's like to the tackle on all sorts of little buttons and things, but why? Isn't it enough to be part of Christ? Anyhow, verse 16, this was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven. So the divine repetition is divine insistence on behalf of Gentiles. This is who this is for. The family that he's going to send him to. If this reinforcement will stick with Peter for the rest of his life, however, he's going to lose sight of it. He's not going to lose it, but he loses sight of it. And Paul will have to call him out. Paul tells us about that in Galatians. I don't think Paul was happy about that. But if he did not withstand those men in, in, up in Antioch when they came up from James and said, okay, 
You're fine being believing in Christ as a Gentile, but you've got to, you know, stop eating these foods. You've got to honor the Sabbath. You've got to come under circumcision. And Paul said nonsense. That's why they hated him so much. That transition. Well, when we get to verse 28, we'll find out Peter does fully understand. But he thrice denied his Lord. We, we remember that. Here he is thrice told what God is doing. What's the point? Peter, you're not disqualified. I am using you so much. I am still totally in love with you. He says this to him. He says it to us. Peter was fully restored like the axe head that flew off the handle into the Jordan. And the prophet Elisha retrieved it, had it float to the top, restored. The cutting edge was given back. Well, continuing on, verse 10 and now, and while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Well, Peter has been prepped, and he's been prepped to preach, and he doesn't even know it. It is amazing that God does not have to have us be conscious of something for something to be there. That takes so much pressure off of me. And it just, uh, how do you get there? By abiding with Christ. That's what Peter was doing when he was praying. He was, if you abide with me, I will abide with you. And we're seeing the fruit of that. But it's showtime now. They're at the gate, verse 18. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. <clears throat> verse 19, while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. And of course, that's the Spirit of the Lord speaking to him. Vision is no guarantee of understanding. He had this vision, he still didn't get it. He is getting it, though. Um, that, and he knows it's sticking with him. And, man, it happened three times. That sticks with him and helps, makes him ponder it. Verse 20, Arise, therefore, go down with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. <laughs> the Lord is saying, I'm not debating this this time. I don't want to hear about not so, Lord. I'm not eating. <laughs> I want you to go with them and shut your mouth. Uh, not in that tone, but that is where it ends up. Uh, and Peter knew the Holy Spirit's voice and not open for discussion. What we hear from God, again, is God's business. What we do with what we hear, it's our business. That's a partnership. That's fellowship with God. As Paul wrote to the Romans, we have fellowship with God. It is not a little thing. Jesus said this, Luke, well, let's take Mark first. Mark four twenty four. Take heed what you hear. Then Luke 8, 18, take heed how you hear. That's a lot of stuff there to think about. Uh, anyway, verse 21, and we'll just take 21 right through 23. And Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? He doesn't get it yet. Verse 22, they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by the holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. <coughs> uh, there's just so much going on here. We're, we're pretty much out of time. Uh, I, 
So they're coming into Peter's house. This is a big deal. The Jews, did, well, actually, it's Tan, Simon the Tanner's house, but uh, you know they're, they're bringing them in, essentially defiling the house. He just didn't. The Jews were just kept that that distance. But God is doing bigger things with them. Um, that Cornelius was a good man is noble, but God does the same thing for people who aren't so good. There are really creepy people that are decreepified <laughs> by the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, in Cornelius' case, it was important for the Jews to have a head start, <clears throat> but there are others that will come to Christ and have come to Christ that were not anywhere near the stature of um, Cornelius, his, his character. He's a grand figure, the first true Gentile to come into the church, as, not as a proselyte. Well, anyway... All of this spiritual drama behind the scenes is still working up to its point. This is what it takes to overcome ignorance and biases and anything else left out. God is informing us here that there's more to saving a soul than holding up a scripture verse. There is spiritual and physical preparation to preach salvation. And if you think you just got it that way, you're wrong. You're going to mess it up and make it worse. It takes work. Well, let's pray. We, uh, we went a little over, but that's the benefit of not having... <laughs> well, that's the benefit of having time. Um, may the Lord bless our musicians. And we greatly appreciate them even more, right? Knowing that um, it's awkward without them. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Thank you for giving us a chance to be flexible to what you're doing, giving us a chance to be mature, that we would not be amateurs forever, that we would become seasoned sermons, prepare, uh, servants prepared to do your will. If you've been listening online or here in the church and you've not opened your heart to Christ, you are the one God is singling out inviting you to come to him. But you have to open your heart. He will never force himself on you. He stands at the door of your heart and your mind, and he knocks, and he asks you to invite him in. If you would like Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, if you'd like to turn away from the doom of judgment that you are headed for, you're going to have to come to him on your own free will. If you make this prayer as an example and in earnest, God will receive you. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. And I ask you to forgive me. There is no one else that has been good enough to die for me and powerful enough to rise from the dead and take away my judgment, my penalties, except you. I give my life to you right here and right now and ask you to be from this day forward my Lord and my Savior. And now, Father, we commit all of this into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.